Today we're talking to Syra Rahman. She is a vice president at Alpine Bank and we're gonna be talking about business banking. We're gonna to touch on some of the banking questions that have been coming up, uh, especially over the last couple months with the ongoing crisis, but we're gonna talk more broadly about business banking in general, why it matters, what a bank can do for your business, and whether you've started something or are already running a business, uh, you're gonna to wanna to be interacting with a bank unless you're doing something illegal. If you're doing something illegal, please don't listen to this episode. Welcome to the practical podcast for technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Okay, so Syra, you've had a really interesting career. We're going to talk about the banking stuff, but your background is not necessarily in this. So I just wanted to ask you real quick, what did you do before you got into business banking and how did you end up here? Uh, so I randomly, randomly started working for an outsourced derivatives trade firm that was a spinoff from KeyBank back in May of 2008. And I... Uh, essentially helped build the bank or the trade desk from at the time when I joined, we worked with eight banks. And then when I left in August of last year, they had a little over 40, almost 50 banks. Um, and basically my role was to be our outside sales and strategic partner with eight different banks that had um, over $40 billion in assets spanning across seven states. So I ran our entire West Coast operation as a derivatives trader. And then you went from derivatives trading and sort of building this pretty successful, what it sounds like, practice into business making at Alpine. What does a business banker do? How is that different? Those seem like very different jobs besides the fact so, that they have to do with money. money. <laughs> so one of my customers was Alpine and they, specifically in Denver, um, my one of my now bosses, he and I became friends and I actually really loved his vision and his goal for the bank. And I, if anyone out there is thinking about switching careers or contemplating job hopping, I really believe that you have to want and share the same vision as your boss. And that was something that I really believed in, in my boss. And he, um, when we started talking, he finally asked me if I was tired of traveling. And I said, kind of, um, because at the time I was traveling six days a week and just had no social life. So this was my transition into something that was completely different from what I was doing before, but still linked because I did work with everyone in my former role that I now work beside um, rather than as a partner, but as a colleague in a different sense. And I just get to see a completely different side of banking, just adding another tool to my toolkit, really, in terms of my overall skill set. And I mean, business bankers, we're just, I, so at Alpine, you kind of wear a lot of hats. You don't just do the business banking side, but we are essentially just present to help strategize um, different ideas and help businesses re achieve their goals, uh, whatever they may be. So I, I really 
that's kind of the cool part of what I get to do now, whereas before I was specifically on strategizing with financing. Can you tell us how big Alpine is? It is a small local Colorado company or y'all bank uh, nationwide? Uh, Colorado only. We're one of the only remaining, I believe we might be the only remaining bank charter um, within just the state of Colorado, originating in Glenwood Springs. Um, Denver is actually one of our newest ventures. We also expanded into Boulder and most recently Fort Collins, but we don't intend on expanding beyond Colorado. We are one of the few uh, employee-owned banks in the entire country, and we're only $4 billion in size. We actually just crossed that threshold recently. So, um, yeah, we're definitely considered to be a community bank and Colorado-specific. Oh, wow. So I guess, you know, working for a smaller company or a smaller bank, yeah, you generally get the ability to wear lots of hats. Uh, do you prefer that or do you like being able to focus on one thing? I love the fact that I can do whatever I want. Uh, not whatever I want, but kind of work in different avenues and just be you're an entrepreneur within the bank. So it's one day I'm working on the PPP loans. The next day I'm working on this wild loan that has all kinds of twists and turns and caveats. And then the next day I'm working on a different project and it's kind of whatever the bank needs is what I end up doing. So especially now where you need a lot of flexibility within your bank's organization. And I have such a different background than a lot of other people. I've been contributing in different ways than I think the typical banker would. One of the hats that you wear that I think is atypical is that you are active on Twitter I saw your posts on Twitter and, you know, you've been sharing, I think, some pretty deep insight from within the banking world about what's happening right now with uh, PPP loans and just general access to capital for small businesses. So, like, what role does Twitter play in work for you? Some people describe Twitter as a war zone. What, what do you do <laughs> on Twitter? Are you just using it? Does, it doesn't seem like you're just using it for, <laughs> it memes. for memes. It seems like you're really no. using it for work. I don't, you know... Twitter is, like it or not, I think, a news source for a lot of people. I take those pieces of news with a grain of salt because people do tend to hyperbolize and they do tend to exaggerate. Um, I also personally use Twitter for a means of discussing items that I think are important. I do tend to follow people that I can acquire information from that is pertinent to things that I do at work. In terms of the PPP stuff, I think that I have exponentially gained accounting knowledge, particularly from tax Twitter, which frankly, I didn't know existed until about a month and a half ago, <laughs> um, because they came storming in the second they figured out that I was a banker, which was kind of funny. But I yeah, I, I don't Twitter is not Twitter is definitely not a meme land for me. Although I do read the memes, I don't necessarily provide them. So it's some, <laughs> it's some enter entertainment, entertainment at least. Yeah, it's entertainment, <laughs> but it's not it, for for my reading pleasure. It's not for my. I'm I'm not really that funny. Um, at least my boyfriend will probably tell you that. So <laughs> I I'm definitely there for the information more than I am to uh, for anything else. I guess. Well, tell us, tell us about the information you've been sharing, just high level about the PPP process. I mean, I know there's lots of FAQs and explainers about how it works, but I just thought it would be really interesting 
the degree to which you can share, what has it been like being on the banking side at the intersection between your commercial clients and the SBA, and as all this new guidance is coming out, what has that process been like, especially as a smaller bank who maybe doesn't have teams of lobbyists and teams of lawyers uh, to do a lot of the legwork? Yeah, so what was interesting was how the bank essentially reorganized in anticipation for the PPP initiation. So in the weeks prior, there were just long nights of planning decisions on what we could and couldn't do, rules that were built around the process. And then we were each given specific roles within that. And since I'm relatively new and at the bank, get I, I have just under a year at this point, and I guess a little more than under a year, but I don't have a large portfolio of customers. And that, in addition to the fact that I'm extremely analytical, they ended up assigning me to um, a PPP analysis role where I was essentially helping streamline each of the loans from here's a loan that's packaged and ready to underwriting review, pushing it through to eTran. Once it was processed in eTran, we received the loan number back, taking that to documentation, then from documentation um, out to our relationship manager, who was then disseminating to the borrower, making sure everything was signed, sealed, and delivered correctly from the borrower, since we're now doing e-signatures because of COVID, all the way to funding. So um, from a process standpoint, the bank reorganized um, and we were, especially that very first round, that first week, um, we jokingly called ourselves the death squad, myself and the other, there were, I think, four of us in total process, helping process probably $350 million in loans. So there were a lot of late nights, um, a lot of jokes about taking shots of tequila. And I mean, it, it, I remember talking to my boss and he was like, it kind of feels like we're in college again, where you're just pulling all-nighters to get stuff done. I mean, we had people working shifts to get loans submitted into eTran because at night eTran was working quicker than in the morning. And then if if we were getting those numbers later, then that was – we still need to push it over to the doc people so the doc people were working late. I mean, it was – I have never seen such a cool and calm, coordinated effort among such a large group of people – where none of us really had done any of that before. And that's probably one of the best aspects of the nimbleness of the bank was that we just did what we were told to do and it didn't matter what time it was. And it was something that I never expected I'd have to do in my career, especially at a bank, if that makes sense. It's just not something that you'd expect to see. Yeah, so for our viewers who might not know, or excuse me, listeners who might not know, what is the PPP? How does that differ from a small business loan? It is a small business loan that comes from the SBA, which borrowers can still currently apply for if they lost a percentage um, of their employees because of what happened with COVID. So essentially, if you were affected and need to be able to rehire your employees or be able to pay them rather than have to furlough some of their pay, you can request 
alone, um, which it varies how big or small it is, but it's essentially two and a half times your monthly payroll based on a number of factors. And the SBA will cut you a check. That loan is then deferred for six months. And then you have up to two years thereafter paying 1% interest to repay it back to the bank. You can apply for full loan forgiveness. That loan forgiveness uh, has yet to be determined exactly what the parameters are. But essentially, if you have used the vast majority of your loan to on payroll um, over an eight-week period from the date of disbursement, and up to 25% of that can be used for rent and utilities in addition to other bills attached to your, um, attached to your company. So there's an EIDL loan that also, I think, up to 10, don't, I, I'm not 100% on the EIDLs because those don't run through the bank. Those actually go directly to the SBA. But I do have a few borrowers that have applied for EIDL loans. And I think up to 10000 can be a grant on those as well. But those are, since they're directly through the SBA, I don't have any underwriting comprehension on what the requirements are for those. So um there, if you are a one or two person entity, um, you can still apply for PPP loans under your 1099 or your Schedule C. It's just a it's just a one person um, application versus being able to apply for multiple. So if you do have a 1099, you're still eligible. It's just that was part of the. I guess a week later, they opened those applications. And now I think you can just apply regardless of whether you're one employee or if you have a larger company. Okay. Are, are they mutually exclusive? Can you, if you, you know, get the PPP loan, you can't get another type of loan or can you apply for both or multiple types of loans? You can apply for both, but you also are unable to double dip. So if you're applying for a PPP loan, your EIDL loan will be subtracted from the total. Got it. So it, it got it. Okay. So there's a total amount cap that you can possibly get from both loans. Based on, yes, based on your business size. Correct. Okay. That's, that's good to know. And that clarifies some things for me as well. So thank you. Yeah. And fortunately, this crisis will pass. And there are business banking questions in general that people should be thinking about outside of this. I think this crisis has shown the power of small banks. I think the data that's coming out about who is issuing these loans, who has been responsive. I think small banks have come out and really shined. Um, and so I would like to kind of move into what banks do in general for businesses and what they can do. Um, do you think it makes a difference? And I, I don't mean to ask a leading question here because I guess I've already said I think it has shown that it does make a difference. But do you think it really makes a difference where you bank for business? I mean, are they all the same? Uh, in practice, I mean, is a business bank just like a regular bank and you just need somewhere to put your money or, you know, why does it, why does it matter? If, if, if I'm starting something and I really want to focus on my product and engineering, where does it care? Like, why does it matter where my money sleeps at night? So I am biased <laughs> for obvious reasons. I will tell you as someone that has her own side businesses in addition to what she does for work. Um, I, I personally firmly believe in community banking, especially for smaller businesses, because you do get the attention, you do get the personalization and customization. And 
especially when it comes to community banking, community banks tend to focus less on incentive pay to their bankers than they do to salary base. And that's not every single community bank. That's just a broad generalization. That being said, when you find community banks that tell their bankers, we're going to salary you rather than give you commission because we want you to focus on not only what's in the best interest of the bank, but also what's in the best interest of the customer. Those kind of things don't really exist at the big banks. Um, In addition to the fact that you'll find if you are a larger company, and what I always say is if you're a large publicly traded company or if you're on like that cusp of being a large company, having multiple banking relationships is important. And I think this crisis actually proved that point again, even though it happened back in 2008 as well. The big banks tend to have higher turnover of bankers in addition to the fact that they just view you as another number. At our bank and really at most community banks, the bankers know their customers' names. They know them well. They know their kids' names. We are much more family-oriented Um, Our CEO always likes to say it's because we, quote unquote, give a damn. I mean, there's just a very, there's a very different attitude towards borrowers at banks like Alpine than there is at a bank like Bank of America. It's just been, I don't know, it, that's just something that I've noticed from working with the Wall Street bankers in addition to working with the community bankers. Most of the people on Wall Street have probably already forgotten my name that I worked with, whereas Pretty much everyone at Alpine when I joined that works within my community has known me forever, uh, pretty much since I started my career. And I and that was them working with me as a partner, not even as a customer, which is their primary focus. So, um, yeah, I think it's very important to when you're at business to have relationships, particularly with community banks. But I mean, as you grow, you're going to want to branch out and have multiple relationships depending on what you need. And different banks also specialize in different things. And different bankers also specialize in different things. So it also depends on what your niche is and what you're focused on and the the level of knowledge that your banker has, not only on your specific industry, but also on the overall market, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I am, I am curious. So the, the relationship and, you know, personal uh, connection that you have with an individual in, in the bank is huge. Um, but I am curious. I could see somebody saying, okay, you know, I'm starting this business and I want to make sure that my bank is going to be around. Like what, what assurances do I have that, Hey, my money's okay. Um, or my loans are okay if I go with a community bank. That's a tough one. I, so. I always say don't ever bank somewhere where you think the bank might fail. Um, I do, (laughs) you know, uh, do I think that banks are going to fail this time? I don't know. First of all, I don't even know if we're going into a recession, but I do believe that if you are looking at a bank and you're putting all of your money and finances there, you should be looking at the bank's financials, just like you would look at your financials and say, is this bank healthy? The second thing that I like to do is understand whether or not that bank's management is management that I would like. So if you're stepping into a bank branch to contemplate them for a potential relationship, have you met the president? Have you asked to meet the president? There, We have meetings with our senior team that will go out and meet with our businesses on a regular basis. So I think there's something to be said about that. And I don't 
I don't think the big banks are, would be willing to do that, which is something to definitely consider. But if you know the executive team and if you're comfortable with how that bank has performed previously, and you can really look at 2009, 2010 and see how a lot of banks have performed. And you can also see how their peers have performed. And it's very easy to tell who took care of themselves in addition to their customers just by looking at a balance sheet um, compared to, you know, what happened, well, what's happening now, really. So where, where, what would I search for? How would I go about finding a bank's, you know, balance sheet or their performance? Uh, I mean, you could look at the annual statements, although those tend to be fairly light. It really depends on whether the bank, I guess, is uh, publicly traded, which would make it easier. I mean, banks like Alpine, I think, you know, you can look at our annual statement. It tells you exactly what's going on. Um, I can I can tell you that as a bank, we have historically been extremely conservative. I wrote my final paper in grad school on Alpine and found that they, of their peers, were it was one of the reasons that I wanted to join them as a bank. They were one of the top performers consistently in terms of their bottom line. And they were also a top performer in terms of creating a massive loan loss reserve, um, which really they've only sat on because our borrowers historically do not tend to default on their loans. They will do anything they can not to default. And that is something that you, that I think that I look for. And I don't, It's hard to explain when you're looking, if you haven't looked at a bank's balance sheet and income statement, um, but basically if a bank is capable of having a large loan loss reserve and you don't see a significant amount of it being just moved into income and you see it actually being utilized for their loan loss reserve, to me that means that they have um, potentially a lot of problem loans. um, And then in addition to that, potentially some... um, erosion coming in the near future if it's or mm, frankly if it's already happening especially right so that's something to look out for when you're looking at their um at, at their statements then yeah right if you're able to find them <laughs> yeah true true and i guess one thing in contrast so if you're starting something new you're moving kind of fast you, a bank is just sort of a necessary thing um, maybe the best way to do it is not like if you get a postcard at your new business address saying, if you create a checking account, you can get, you know, $200 in your checking account. Maybe that's like not the best, even though it's nice to have $200, maybe that's not the best way necessarily exclusively to choose a bank. It sounds like you're saying do some research, talk to people, maybe walk into a branch or if that's not possible, have a call with people. Uh, yeah. Think, think about it. It should be a considered decision, right? And not just yeah. like a, a little thing. And there's a there's a personality fit to it. Like Harris, I could tell when you reached out that he, like you are the type of customer that we would want at our bank. I mean, there's there's definitely a personality fit to it. People banks tend to hire people that fit the culture of the bank, and and so if you feel like that culture is something that represents your company, I think that's significant. And and in terms of research, the one thing that I've always heard people say is. What's the technology like? How, you know, what's the interface? We can step you through technology and the interface. Most community banks, let's be honest, have very average, to put it nicely, um, technology. And they don't always necessarily have the highest deposit rate or, you know, the 
the cheapest loan interest rate. But if you have to pay slightly more interest or if you're getting slightly less on your deposits, but you end up having a banker that calls you and says, hey, this pandemic is underway. I know that you own three buildings. Do you need us to defer your mortgage for the next X number of months because your tenants aren't probably going to be able to pay? Instead of you having to call in a panic, I think that there is something huge there um, in that relationship that is so much more significant than having to pay a little bit more interest or making a little bit less on your deposits. And I think that's really what's come out from this pandemic is that tiny little cost differential ends up being worth so much more. That's a really good segue into some questions that we got from listeners on this were around, hey, can't I just do like an online banking thing? Do I even need to have a bank that has any sort of like brick and mortar or like local presence um, versus, you know, again, is banking just this very commoditized part of my overall business? Um, I think you've covered this pretty well, but are there any specific things about like being an, an online only bank, uh, any drawbacks that you think that uh, people may not realize when they're signing up when it maybe seems easier in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons. So while I conceptually think neobanks are fascinating and they are typically cheaper, which is why they can offer certain terms better. When you are in a crisis, let's say, for example, um, you belong to an online bank and then their online platform breaks down and you need money, which recently happened to, I believe, one of the biggest online banks. Where are you going to get your money from if you can't transfer money in or out and you only have an online platform? Um, I also think there's something to be said in times of crisis of being able to talk to an actual physical human and all of our people and our team actually are within Colorado. And I think there's something to be said about that. I also think there's something to be said about being brick and mortar in the sense that there is a requirement um, and also an obligation as a bank to want to reinvest in your community because that's truly how we as a bank get our name out into the community. So one of my roles is to be out and present and not in the sense that I'm standing around trying to network at strange little banking events. I'm physically present at volunteer events. That is part of my job. So my work hours are partially consumed by doing something for, you know, uh, an educational volunteer opportunity, sitting on a board and providing financial assistance in the sense that I just give broad perspective to companies that need it. I mean, there are so many other aspects to the brick and mortar part that tie me into my community and help really reinvest the money that the customers come in and bring into the branch. And I think that that's also really significant to the brick and mortar concept outside of just, you know, what happens in an emergency, because you don't, if you're, an, if you're a great technology and a great online bank, you might have a wonderful presence online, but you have no presence within that community. And I think that's the benefit of that is so immense relative to relative to really anything you could do online. So I wanted to ask it a, 
probably a very, very, very simple question here. Um, and it's something I didn't know when I was starting a business. And it's, are you required to have a separate bank account for your business? Uh, yeah. So there's a difference between having a personal checking account and a business checking account. So um, there's definitely, you got you to gotta have the business checking. Yes. And this is, and this is for the IRS to like, not consider you a certain status, right? Like, like the, I, the IRS is like, like otherwise it's like a hobby, right? And and so they want to see the separate. Am I getting this right? Because like, I I started a business account and I had no idea. I'm like, oh, I can't just pass through the funds to my personal. Account. Like, no, no, you really need a business account for your LLC. Like, even if it's a one person, a sole proprietorship, or an LLC. Like, no, you gotta have. Like, I can't stress the importance of you need to have a yes. separate business, a banking account. Well, so, th- I mean, there's a lot of rules behind that. Like, we're trying, you know, as a bank, we're trying to prevent money laundering. We're trying to prevent terrorism. Um, there's all kinds of things. Fraud. There's all kinds of things. So when you have a personal checking account, that is for your personal use. You can have a direct deposit from your company. But your company itself, just because money goes in and out of businesses so quickly, you yes, you have to have a separate business account. And that is, that's, that's actually a very common question. So that's not, that's not a bad question at all. <laughs> I, I know a lot of our viewers are people who are either starting their own companies or considering it. And I, I just wanted to make sure that's clear to people who haven't gone through it before is like one of the big steps you need to do is have a separate banking account. So yes, thank you. exactly. Exactly. Well, let's go through a couple other just sort of practical hand to hand combat type of things here, things you'll have to just make decisions on. So like business credit card, that's that's like another thing. What should business owners think about? Should they use a business credit card? Is that a tool? Is it just another way to spend money and it doesn't matter? Um, is that a thing that people should think about or not? So from my perspective, I like business credit cards because it's an easy way to separate your business from your personal. Again, everything everything that makes it streamlined for your accountant and then streamlined for your taxes, I just think is such a huge benefit, especially when you get ready to take out your first business loan. The easier it is to underwrite the loan, the quicker you get the money. So if you have clear and concise accounting of everything that you're doing, whether that's having separate cards for different aspects of your business um, and then a separate one for your personal use, all of those things contribute overall to your accounting, which frankly, I can't even stress this enough. I think having good accounting is great. Having a great accountant is better unless you are a CPA. So that was something that I have learned over time painfully myself. So I always, there are two things. Yes, definitely on the credit card. Um, but if I could throw a plug in there, definitely get a really great local CPA that knows your business as well. So I, if I can jump in real fast with, with my personal story, I, when I started my business, I, at the time I happened to have two credit cards. And so all I did was just say like, okay, one is now pure business use only. So if you're in that situation, you have like, oh, this one's with my Southwest points. And then this one's for my Amazon points. You can easily enough just say, okay, one of these is just for business expenses. And then just start tallying the, you know, how much you pay in versus how much you use that card for. Um, I found that was easy, but only for people who happen to have two or more credit cards. You can just say, this one is business use only. But otherwise, are there other specific business cards um that you think might be beneficial for businesses? Um, like, is it worth is it worthwhile to open a separate one? Was is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. So, you know, I I used to like play the game, and I was a like 
follow the points guy and like did had a bunch of different credit cards for every little thing at work. And I, I, you know, I, there's not one, are you, I, am I misunderstanding your question? You're saying, is there one credit card that I prefer? No, no, no. Is Oh, just in general. Yeah, no, I do believe it. I do believe in having a business credit card. Absolutely. I do think, because if you have a a credit card attached to your business account, it just makes it again, easier for accounting. Um, and in terms of separation of work and personal. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, well, what I was asking is, are there specific business credit cards? Is it worthwhile going for one of those for your business rather than just saying, you know what, I'm going to use a personal one as my business one? Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes there are cool perks to some of the business credit cards. If you travel a lot, I've found that there are business credit cards that are worthwhile because they tend to give you better perks. But I mean, outside of that, I think credit cards have relatively diminished their value in terms of the perks that come alongside them, especially the ones that you end up having to pay for. So I always go, from my perspective, I always go for the lowest fee, best um, perk. So, you know, if you can stick to like something that has the flying and the hotel perks shared, those are probably my preference. Got it. If, if you travel a bunch. Yeah, right. If you travel a bunch. If you don't travel, which frankly, I have slowed down my travel immensely. Yeah, I think any any business credit card is great. And you mentioned you mentioned that it's useful to have that in the bookkeeping when you go to get your first loan. Um, so can you talk us through like, okay, so I've got a business, I'm up and running, I've got a credit card, uh, I'm keeping track of my books. And let's say I want to you know, my business is getting more sophisticated. I want to buy inventory or maybe get like, you know, invest in equipment or something like that. What's the next thing? Is it, a, is it a line of credit? It is a business loan. How do I like level up the finance side of my business once it's gotten a little more complicated than just being sort of a checking account, a savings account and a credit card? How do I know when is it time to like talk to a banker to like take things up a level? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I guess the first question is, do you need working capital? So if you're looking at your business and you're saying, I want more cash so that I can have either more inventory, like whatever the case may be, if your cash flow fluctuates and varies widely and you're concerned because you're reaching margins that are making you uncomfortable, I think at that point, it's time to look at a working capital loan. Um, If you are paying a really high lease and you're contemplating buying out your current building or looking at other buildings because you want to just own rather than pay for the space to someone else. Um, I think that that's, it's time for you to take a look at a commercial term loan. Um, Lines of credit really, I mean, it varies. It depends on what you're looking at doing, but realistically, it's twofold. I would, and this is one of the important parts of really having a community banker, I would build that relationship with the community banker and talk to them about what you're doing. A good community banker can help you anticipate those things as well as a good accountant. Frankly, a good accountant can also help you anticipate those things. When I, my accountant in Seattle was absolutely wonderful and she literally forecasted out for me um, what I could and could not afford. And that's, and I think that that's something that needs to constantly be asked. So in terms of your growth rate, what are you going to need over the course of the next two to five years? And really now, I think the projection is really important over the course of the next year. So if you haven't already taken out that line of credit or if you haven't already contemplated 
purchasing your building and you're paying rent, are you contemplating renegotiating your rent because the market may be going into a recession? Are you contemplating buying a building? Are you contemplating getting a line of credit to protect yourself in case the market does turn and suddenly you have struggles within your business? So all of those things right right now, I think are really important. But in general, um, I try to forecast two to five years for any business that uh, I'm talking to, to say this, what are your goals? Because then you can really project what the actual underlying loan might be. Mm. So starting with your goals for the business financially overall, which ultimately are going to be your personal financial goals. Like, do you want to sell the business? Do you want to continue to own it, but maybe step out of operations or maybe you just be in it every day? No, the other thing too is like crisis, you know, there's obviously lots of like images of downside crisis, but there's also crises that can come on the upside. Like if we have a V-shaped recovery and there's a quick snapback or, you know, your company gets on Shark Tank or, you know, whatever, Kim Kardashian is like, hey, you know, this product changed my life. (laughs) All of a sudden, like you've got a problem on the other side where you've got this cash crunch and maybe you need to ramp up production or you, you know, your shelves just got cleared out in a good way. I think that having a banker can help on the upside as well, it, you it's the same problem, it's to, just in reverse, but you still right. end up having these cash flow concerns and you still need to get more access to credit, right? I mean, it's not, you don't want a business banker just for the rainy days, but also for the sunny days, right? Right, which is why it's a continual conversation and it, which is why it's so important that you have someone that you can actually reach on the phone. I mean, that actually circles back to the whole neobank concept. I mean, online only is great, but if you suddenly find yourself in a disposition where you need much more than what something online can provide to you, that is, in my in my head, I would rather be talking to someone on the phone that can step me through everything rather than having to figure it all out by myself. And you're absolutely right. That's upside and downside. And that's really what we've seen for the last decade is having to help companies that have no idea what to do because they're exploding at the seams um, rather than having to help um, in the down potential downfall. Absolutely. So, okay, what's the most common mistake? I think we've covered a lot. Is there anything that we've missed? Is there a common mistake that you're seeing, you see small business owners make or founders make when it comes to banking? I think the biggest mistake that small business owners make is they send out requests for terms from a bunch of different banks, and they always include big banks within that when they try to get their first big loan. And then they end up taking the cheapest instead of trying to negotiate with maybe not the cheapest, but with some of the smaller banks that probably have more nimbleness on their term sheet than they initially release. So if I, if I were a small business contemplating switching relationships and I had my first, one of my first big loans, or maybe it's later in life and you, you're still a small business and you're looking for a loan in general, I would reach out to a bunch of community banks and maybe one big bank, get request or get their terms from everyone and then start negotiating and negotiate hard. Um, There's never until a bank gives you a hard no, there is no hard no. And while I do believe in stepping forward with my best foot, that doesn't mean that I can't go beg my executive for something different, if that makes sense. So 
I would never take the cheapest deal. I would just take the cheapest deal and turn it around on everyone and negotiate the heck out of it until I got what I wanted. So you can use that and say like, oh, hey, look, this bank is offering this, but you know, can you can you budge a little bit um, and help me out here? For yes. And you might not end up with that exact term sheet from whatever, from ABC Big Bank, but you might end up with really wonderful terms that are very close to that. And frankly, that relationship with that smaller bank will benefit you so much more. And then you've also figured out um, like a happy medium between what a big bank will price and offer you and potentially never talk to you again after those terms are released and the funds are gone until you have a problem. And then you have this community bank that's like working with you to figure out what you wanted um, and, th- and then they will check on you and they will still want to know how you're doing and what you need. So, yeah, that's that's probably the biggest mistake that small companies make. Okay. That or just going for the bank that gives them like free Denver Broncos checks with a little <laughs> helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big one. That's uh <laughs> Well, yeah, there's lots of perks. Obviously, that's the main one. Think about that when you're choosing a bank for sure. Okay, well, Syra, I think we've covered a ton here. This has been super helpful. Is there anything else that you want to share? Um, where can we, you know, where can folks find you online? How else, what else, what do you want to leave us with here? <laughs> uh, well, my Twitter handle is just my name, so it's Syra Rahman. But um, if you're looking for me, You'll find me out and about in the Denver community, generally speaking. So that's probably the easiest way to find me if you're not looking for me online. But thank you guys so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. All right. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out. We'll put a link to her Twitter account in the show notes so you can find her. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink Show is shared under a CC BY 4.0 license by Skull Riza LLC and Kenny Consulting Group LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC BY 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash Amin Maxwell slash routine. <laughs>